All right, so last week was uh, Parashat Bereshis, but actually last week was two parashas. Beginning of the week was Bezot Bracha, the last parasha of the Torah, and we were reading that until Tuesday. And then, when we finished the Torah, some Torah, and then we restarted Bereshis right away, so then, boom, we, we jumped right into Bereshis. So we didn't even have a full seven days to contemplate and to learn and to discover everything that there is to learn about Bereshis. We had to pack it into... Uh, barely three and a half, maybe four days uh, of learning. So this week, Parashas Noyach is the first regular normal week of the year, and we are learning Noyach full-time, starting already from the first day. Um, th- this Parsha is um, quite demoralizing in a way, uh, because it speaks about the destruction of, of the world. Uh, in fact, God was not very happy with this whole thing. God was very upset. The last week's parasha, we learned that God regretted creating humanity. God, by Liboy, he was very sad. Um, and the beginning of this parasha is also a very sad type of parasha, not just because of the destruction of humanity through the through the mabul, through the flood, but even afterwards, it seems that humanity was, was struggling to figure out how to absorb the lessons of the mabul, of the, of the flood. Imagine you lived through the flood. Imagine you lived in a world where there were hundreds of thousands, perhaps even millions of people, um, all of your family and everything, and all of a sudden you go into this box, and 365 days later you come out and there's nothing. Right? Okay, and then you're told by God, that now, now you, your three brothers and your wives, you're going to have to repopulate the world. You can be sure that the story of the destruction of humanity is going to be a very, very integral part of your children and their children and the next generation and all the subsequent generations, especially during the lifetime of those that survived the flood, definitely the story of the flood is going to um, resonate very strongly and is going to motivate many of the decisions that people make, uh, you know, private decisions and public decisions uh, are going to be based off of, you know, the lessons of the flood. Um, and the record shows that for hundreds of years, people are struggling with what exactly is the right lesson from the flood. The end of the parasha describes a story. The, the next big story in the parasha, after the story of the flood and then Noah's reaction to the flood, he, he, he planted a vineyard and he drank wine. And that whole after that whole drama, we come to the story of the Tower of Babel. It's a very puzzling story. The whole story is very strange from beginning to end um, for various reasons. Um, the Tower of Babel was a story that came as a direct result of the human reaction, the human trauma from the flood. So what exactly happened? There? So let's go to source number one. The entire earth was of one language and uniform words. That one language was the holy tongue, Lashon HaKodesh. And it came to pass when they traveled from the east that they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and fire them thoroughly. And they used bricks for stone and clay for mortar. So there, I think there are three main details that we have to, we have to focus on here. Number one, it, the Torah makes uh, an emphasis on the fact that they all had the common language. They all spoke the same language. They all, they all understood each other. Number two, that they all settled in a valley. 
They all wanted to settle together and they found this huge valley, Shinar, Babylon, um, which today is Iraq, essentially. And then they said to one another, let us make bricks. And the Torah describes that they made bricks and, and um, the bricks were instead of stone and the clay was mortar. So Rashi um, says like this, bricks, because there are no stones in Babylon, which is a valley. What, is, what does that mean that there are no stones in Babylon? When valleys don't have stones. So we're not talking here about pebbles or, or rocks. We're talking here about huge stones that you, you chisel out of the mountain. Huge stones that you, that you use to build homes, to build you know, places to live. Um, in a valley, you don't have that. You don't have these huge stones that you can build homes from. You know, like the stones from the Kotel, from the Western Wall. And these are huge, gigantic stones. You don't find these things in the valley. Huh? Right? All the small pebbles, all the small little garnish, right? All the small stuff. Right? So now, if they want to, if they want to uh, build something big, they have to... Um, they will, we'll, we'll talk about that soon in a moment. And there's bricks. Fire them thoroughly. This is how they make bricks. They are baked in a furnace. And they said, so we're continuing the story as it is recorded in the Torah. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower which it's with its top in the mountains. And let us make ourselves a name, lest we be scattered upon the face of the entire earth. Well, what's going on here? <laughs> what's, what's the need for the tower? They want to build a city. They want to build homes, whatever. What's, what's the purpose of the tower? Okay. <coughs> I'm sorry. And the Lord descended to see the city and the tower that the sons of man had built. And the Lord said, Lo, they are one people, and they all have one language. And this is what they have commenced to do. Now will it not be withheld from them all that they had planned to do, Come, let us descend and confuse their language so that one will not understand the language of his companion. For some reason, God was upset with this entire, uh, with this entire enterprise. And he said, I have to break it up. I have to get rid of them. There, there's something treacherous. There's something treacherous about what they're doing, about this enterprise. And therefore, we have to, we have to stop it. How are we going to stop it? We're going to confuse their language. So literally, and, and, and so he says later on, and the Lord scattered them from there upon the face of the entire earth, and they ceased building the city. So God came down and literally inserted into each group of people a different language into their brain. He gave each one of them a Rosetta Stone. Boom. That's it. They automatically started to speak a different language. Yesterday, they were all speaking Hebrew, and the next day, one is speaking one is speaking Chinese, another one is speaking uh, French, another one Swahili, and the other one English, and I don't know what else, I'm saying Latin, whatever languages are from the original 70 languages that God, uh, so to speak, you know, spread out the entire humanity. Good evening, welcome. Spread out the entire humanity um, as a result of these languages. What happened was, they wake up the next morning, they don't understand each other. So one of them asked his friend and says, pass me a, a hammer. Instead of passing him a hammer, he passes him a paper clip. So he gets all upset. They start arguing with him. And it, it took them time to realize that they weren't speaking the same language. But by the time they realized this, they already had a whole civil war going on. 
and they realized immediately that it would be better that they should regroup and they should all group themselves based on the languages and they all um, you know, left. They, they migrated away from this, uh, from this valley and no longer was there just this one, uh, you know, one nation uh, called humanity. It was now at least 70 separate diverse nations. And that's how God got them to stop building this tower. Therefore, he named it Babel, for there the Lord confused the language of the entire earth. Babel has the same, uh, the same root as Balal. Balal means to mix around, to confuse. And from there, the Lord scattered them upon the face of the entire earth. That's it. That's the story. Now, what was so terrible about what these, uh, what, what's the treachery? What is the blasphemy of the Tower of Babel? So the truth is, um, there's a story in the Medrash. You know, a lot of things, it's always good to understand context of time. The story of the Tower of Babel happened during the lifetime of Avram Avid. He was in his mid-50s when this was going on. According to all accounts, he was already, um, he was already, uh, how do you say, a believer in God. Not only did he believe in God, but he was proselytizing about God. So he was definitely, um, he was definitely uh, someone to be reckoned with in the world at the time. So source number two tells us like this. The tower had stairs on its east and west. So they're building this city with bricks and they're building this huge tower. So how do they, how do they pile up the bricks on top of each other? They didn't have scaffolding. Well, this is the olden day type of scaffolding. They also didn't have, you know, huge lifts. So the tower had stairs on its east and west. The laborers who took up the bricks went up on the eastern steps, and those who descended went down on the western steps. Now listen to this. If a person fell and died, they paid no heed to him. But if even one brick fell, they sat down and wept and said, Woe is to us. When will another one come in its stead? Bricks were more valuable than human life. Why? What was the secret of the brick? So if you look at the, at the verse, when it describes the, the setting, it says they all came to the valley. They all had one language. They all came to the valley. And they said, let us make bricks. Before this time period, in fact, before the, before the marble, before the, before the, the, the major flood, people were very strong. I mean, they lived very long. The human body was, was, was many times stronger than it is today. Mesushalach, I don't know how you say that in English, Methuselah, he, he lived to be 969. It's a long time. It's a long time. And these weren't, uh, you know, out of, these were not out of the ordinary type of things. People, the, the life expectancy at the time was close to a thousand years. People were strong, they were huge, they were self-sufficient. And in fact, during that time period, most people lived in the mountains. And if they wanted to build a house, they would chisel out huge stones from the mountain. And pretty much on their own, they would go, they would move the stones and they would set them up. And, you know, they would build their own home. Um, people were very independent at the time. They were self-sufficient. They took care of their own food. They never had to come together and cooperate and, and, and you know, work together to provide food for humanity. Everyone was on their own. 
which actually explains why after about a thousand years or more, 1500 years, people were very selfish. And therefore they were steeped in thievery and in incest. And it was, it was just terrible. Why? There was never a need for centralized government. There was never a need for, for a cooperation. There was never a need for community. Even for family, there was no need. Everyone was on their own. Which also might explain how it was possible that Noah could be a righteous person in such an atmosphere. <laughs> Everyone lived on their own. Everyone was, you know, self-sufficient. So essentially, if you wanted to build a home, you built it with stones that came from the mountains. Um, as a result, there was a limit of how high you could build your home. You got this huge stone. You can't really lift up a huge stone on top of another huge stone. You want to have a strong home. It had to be from stones. And it had to be from stones that were pretty much the height of a person and that stuff. After the flood, literally the nature of humanity drastically changed. People became much, much weaker. They lived much, much shorter. The average lifespan starts to really, really decrease starting from Noah, who lives, I don't know, over 700 years, his children, it goes down and it goes down drastically. Within 10 years, you have people dying in their mid, you know, 120, 150, even less. Abraham went to 175. But, you know, people started to die much earlier. People were much weaker. It was impossible for everyone to take care of themselves. It was impossible to build your own home. People had to start living together. There was a man, his name was Nimrod. Nimrod was a master community activist. He was charismatic. He knew how to organize people. And he said, look, there's a lot of people. We all have to live together. Living in the mountains is not very helpful. Let's go find a valley that could contain us all. And they found the valley, Shinar, Bavel, Iraq. They all settled in the valley. How are you going to build homes? They invented the brick. What's a brick? A brick, you take mud. You put it in the furnace. You shape it basically the size of a pomegranate. Once it comes out of the furnace, even a child could hold the brick. And if you take the brick and pile it up on top of each other in rows, and you put mortar in between, you put cement, guess what you have? You have a very sturdy home. You don't need these huge, massive stones. All you need to do is put a bunch of bricks together. And when you have a bunch of bricks, everyone can work together. You could build high towers. You could build cities. The brick was the most disruptive invention at the time. It changed everything. Now people can work together. People can build huge cities, humongous towers. It changed everything. In fact, they went even further and said, now we can save ourselves from any flood that might come to destroy us. Remember, they were still traumatized from the flood that happened about 300 years ago. And they said, then people could not escape the flood because the flood went above the mountains. But guess what? We're going to build a tower that's much higher than the mountains. And the floodwaters will never be able to reach us because we are going to build higher and higher and higher. All in the merit of the brick. The brick gave people the opportunity to think that they are in control. When they had to use natural stones, the stones were heavier than them. But now that they created, they, 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 uh, 
they invented the brick that they are in control of, now they're in control of destiny. That's why he says, Vinasa Lanu Shame will make for ourselves a name. We're going to build a city. Urban life is going to begin. We're going to cooperate. Everyone's going to be involved. And we're going to build this huge tower, which is going to save us. We are in control now. We're not dependent on God. You're starting to see the treachery here. And all of that blasphemy came as a result of this beautiful invention called the brick. Now we can understand why when they were going up this, you know, on the, on the east side, bringing up a brick, if a person fell, they couldn't care less. But if the brick fell, oy vey. Why? Because the brick was the key to them controlling their destiny. When Avram, so now, in general, people were very neutral to this whole idea. They weren't sure, is it a good thing or is it a bad thing? So they asked Avram, they said, what do you say about this enterprise? So Avram said, let me go and see what's going on. So Avram came, and he noticed this phenomenon. That when a person fell, meh. They wouldn't even notify the family. Who cares? But if a brick fell, this was the worst thing in the world. In other words, the economy is more valuable than human life. Avram, son of Terach, I'm, I'm, I'm reading from source two on page four. And Avram, son of Terach, passed by and saw them building the city and the tower. And he cursed them in the name of God. And he said, destroy, O Lord, divide their power. And Avram saw that the brick was more valuable than human life. He saw that their that 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 their um, their value system was completely corrupt, and he saw that all they wanted was to outsmart God, so to speak. And how are they doing so? By virtue of the brick. Avram saw that this was this was a terrible thing. Avram was right, and God was upset with the with the building of of this tower, and therefore he decided to disperse them. So let's talk a little bit about what was the motivation of this. And, and they became known, this generation was known as their Haflogo, the generation that was dispersed as a result of the fact that God changed all their languages. What was their problem? Why were they so desperate to build a city, to build a tower, to outsmart God? Page five. This comes from a discourse from the, from the previous Rebbe. The Dora Floga did not want to observe the commandments. Mitzvahs. Why? Because the idea of mitzvahs, of commandments, is a relationship and connection to be nullified to the giver of the mitzvah, to the commander. What's the purpose of a mitzvah? By the way, they had mitzvahs there. They had the seven Noahide laws, the seven Noahide mitzvot, mm -hmm. right? What's the idea of a mitzvah? It's about a relationship with God. In holiness, what does a relationship with God mean? That you submit yourself to God. In holiness, the energy is drawn precisely through nullification. For the objective of the mitzvot is to rein in one's desires. And as the Talmud teaches, Rav said, the mitzvot were only given to refine the people. For what does it matter to God if one slaughters from the neck or from the nape of the neck? Rather, the commandments were given in order to refine the human beings. We have a mitzvah to slaughter the animal. And how should you slaughter the animal? From the neck and not from the back of the neck, right? Who cares? God really cares. And the answer is, it's not that God cares. God is giving you rules that life is not just do whatever you want. The purpose is, is that you should become a more refined person. It's not everything goes. 
But their Aflaga did not want to follow the ways of God, but rather to follow the whims of their evil hearts. As the verse states, and they said to God, turn away from us. We do not wish to know your ways, the ways of the Torah and mitzvot, which are called the ways of God. This is because the observance of the mitzvot must be done with self-nullification, in which they had no interest. So it's not that it's, it's not that the Dara had a problem with a specific type of mitzvah. They had a problem with the whole concept. No one commands us mitzvahs. We don't need to have a relationship with the divine. And essentially what they were saying was, we don't want to have rules. We don't want to have to be subservient to an authority. We are the authority. Whatever we, we're going to follow our hearts, and that's it. This is the meaning of the words, and it came to pass when they traveled from the east. The Hebrew word for east is Kedem. When they removed, so Kedem, Kedem means east. Why does it mean east? If you look, so there's an it's going to be hard to visualize this without more visuals, but like this. The holy temple, the way it was situated, so where was God in the Holy Temple? In the Holy of Holies, right? That, that was the holiest space in, on, on earth, right? That's where the Holy Ark was, with the two tablets, etc. Now, the way the Holy Temple was built, the way it was situated, when you walked into the sanctuary, when you walked into the courtyard of the Holy the Temple courtyard, when they offered sacrifices, when you walked in from the front door, you were facing west. At the far western end of the courtyard was the building that housed the sanctuary, which right behind the sanctuary was the Holy of Holies. So when a Jew walked into the front door of the, court, of, the, of the temple courtyard, he was facing west. He's facing the Holy of Holies. So where is God in the Holy of Holies? So if you're facing God and God is facing me, which direction is God facing? East. So what is God, how is God stationed in the world, so to speak? Facing east. So what is east? Front. Right? What is, um, yeah, anyway, so Kedma, Kedma means front. Kedem means Kadima, right? Kadima means front. So they traveled from the east, which is Kedem. The word Kedem, front, could also has the same root, uh, has the same etymological connection with the word Kadmon. What does Kadmon mean? It's pretty much the same thing as front. Kadmon means like the first. That which preceded everything. They didn't just travel from Kedem from the east. They traveled away from the Kadmon. They separated themselves. They removed themselves from God. God who precedes all of creation. And they found a valley in the land of Shinar. And there they built a city and tower of the other side, of Klippa, of Sitra Akro. They built the tower of unholiness opposite the city and the tower of holiness. All right. So the busy building. So now, now we understand. I mean, to, to an extent, 
um, the context in which the plan, the scheme of this generation was so terrible. They wanted to prove their independence from God. Uh, they don't need God, and that's it. And it would seem that it all is expressed in the brick. In the act of construction, you're using bricks. Now we're going to talk a little bit about bricks and building stuff with bricks. When is the next time we find in the Torah the concept of construction and the construction with bricks? The next time is probably about uh, 300, no, 200, 250 years later when the Jewish people are enslaved in Egypt for 210 years. And how are they enslaved? The main work that they were forced to do was to build cities for Pharaoh with bricks. It's an uncanny, it's an, it's an ironic uh, correlation here, right? The Dora flogger, the, 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 the generation of the dispersion, they were using bricks. And here, the Jewish slaves in Egypt are also using bricks. So let's read through this. The Talmud, I'm on page six, um, source B. The Talmud expounds on the verse, and they embitter their lives with hard work, with bricks and mortar of all kinds of work in the fields. All of their work start, stating that it began with bricks and mortar, continued with all kinds of work in the fields, and ended up with all of their work. Commentaries explain that the Talmud is responding to a question. Why does the Torah specify the work with bricks and mortar, even though it is included in the general statement regarding all their work? They did a lot of things. They plowed their fields, and they were shepherds, and they had to cook and, and bake and all these different things. So why are, we, why are we specifically saying that they were forced into construction? In response to this question, the Talmud explains that the forced labor with bricks and mortar came first. Since it preceded the rest of the work, it is specified separately before the general statement. All right, so that's, that's like a technical thing. The way they were enslaved was specifically through a huge construction project. And when we'll learn Exodus, you can go into more details of how exactly that happened. But the Rebbe continues, everything in Torah is absolutely precise. If the work with bricks and mortar came first in time, it must also have been primary in importance, the most difficult and severe element of the enslavement. The bricks and mortar must have been the primary labor from which all of the other forms of work later developed. This is why we see that even after the Jewish people we're already working in all forms of work. Their primary job was still brickmaking. How do we know that? This is evident from the continuation of the story. Now, when Pharaoh wished to increase the people's workload, literally months before they left Egypt, right? But when Moses came and they demanded, let my people go, Pharaoh says, not only am I not going to let them go, I'm going to make their lives miserable. I'm going to increase their workload. How? He did so specifically through the brickmaking process by ordering that the Jews no longer be provided with ready straw yet still be required to produce the same quota of bricks. This event happened at the end of the period of enslavement after Moses and Aaron had already been sent by God to order Pharaoh to let the people go. What's the secret about the bricks and brick making? The reason why the primary element of the slavery was bricks and mortar is as follows. The meaning of the Egyptians enslaved the Jewish people and embittered their lives with hard work is that the Egyptians took the life and strength of the Jewish people which all comes from their holy divine souls, and used it towards the construction of storage cities for Pharaoh. 
Jewish people possess divine life, divine energy, which really should be involved in divine enterprises. And what did Pharaoh do? He forced it into Egyptian enterprises, materialistic enterprises. That's bitter. Instead of the Jews working on building a dwelling place for God, the Egyptians forced them to use their holy powers to build on behalf of the forces of impurity storage cities for Pharaoh. Okay. So now we're going to kind of, okay, so here we see we have this correlation between the the Dorha Flaga, the the the, the, the the, the generation of the dispersion that we learned about in this week's parasha, and the generation that, that was slaves in Egypt, they also, both of them were working with bricks. And what's the idea here? When we do something, a brick represents action. That's the idea. A brick represents action. Every action can either be good or bad. It can either be invested in Kedusha and holiness, or invested in Sitra Akhara and the opposite, in unholy, unholy areas of this world. When we do something positive, a mitzvah, or a mundane act conducted for the sake of heaven, we add a metaphorical brick to the building of holiness. When we do something negative, we add a brick to the building of impurity. The difference is only in the type of building, but the external effect is identical. Building. The question is, what are you building? Are you building a shul or are you building a casino? Are you building a mitzvah space or are you building a sinning space? Positive actions contribute to the building of Jerusalem and negative actions contribute to the building of... How do you say that word? Sor. Anyway, the opposite of Jerusalem. The opposite of holiness. Now, I know some of us here, we're, we're very excited when we talk about reincarnation, right? Gilgulim. Kabbalistic ideas of Gilgulim. So I'm not going to get into you know deeply into this, but source four, if you want to read it yourself, source four and five actually points out that according to Kabbalah, the generation of the slaves in Egypt were a reincarnation of the people that were building the Tower of Babel, Tower of Babel. Now you can understand why both of them were building with bricks. What was the idea here? As we mentioned earlier, the generation that built the tower, the generation of the dispersion, what was the, what was motivating them to build the tower? They didn't want to have what's called in Hebrew bitul. They didn't want to be nullified to God. They didn't want to be subservient to God. So this was an expression of their un their, their unchecked egos. They were proud of themselves. Look at human progress. Look what we're able to do. We're able to invent a brick. We're able to build this huge tower. Look at us. We're so special. God wanted to bring tikkun to this generation. He wanted to, to refine them. He wanted to fix them. So what did he do? He took that entire generation, all of those souls, and he invested them into a generation that's going to be enslaved in Egypt. That the work that they're going to do with the bricks is not going to be an expression of their ego. On the contrary, it's going to break them. It's going to crush their egos. <coughs> and that is the most important prerequisite for receiving the Torah. So that, that's, uh, I, don't, I don't want to get into this now, uh, but just to, you, you can see how everything in the Torah is so interconnected and, 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 and flows so seamlessly and, and complements each other. Um, so you see that this whole narrative about the bricks and about the building and about the two generations actually fits together like a glove, even according to Kabbalah in a very beautiful way. 
But now, now let's get a little bit deeper into this whole issue. So till now we've mentioned that the problem with the brick is that it enabled people to think that they were in control. Let's talk, let's, let's get a little bit deeper into this brick situation. What is the define, what was, what's the difference between a brick and a stone? A stone, what's the difference? So use, use better words for nature. Who made it? Hashem made it. What's a brick? Bricks are man-made and stones are God-made, right? You don't even notice the kotel, right? The kotel is built from what? Stones. The holy temple was built from stones, from the holy stones, right? Bricks, So, and what, and what did they do in Egypt? They were busy building with bricks, right? Bricks are man-made and stones are natural. Stones are, are divine, more divine, right? But is a brick all that bad? Is a brick only bad? Oh, depends what you do with it. So let's let's uh, take a deep dive into the brick. Page 10. The Alter Rebbe explains in a Hasidic discourse that there are two types of stones, actual stones that are natural divine creations and Matt, page 10. Page 10. Um, so there are, there are two types of stones, actual stones that are natural divine creations and man-made bricks formed from soil which is hardened and strengthened. The man-made bricks are also referred to as stones. As the verse says, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they used bricks for stone. And bricks can be used to build a building just like stones can, as is well known. But in order to produce durable bricks, they need to undergo a process of baking in a furnace. And only then does the brick become like stone. These are man-made stones, unlike natural stones, which are created by God. Okay. So we have stones, we have bricks. Now, we're, we're going to... There's Israel, which is a holy space. And then there's Bavel which represents everything that's against holiness, right? It's a valley. See soon, what, what, what is, what is, what's the problem, so to speak, with a valley? This parallel, page 11, this parallels the difference between the land of Israel. By the way, remember that in the very beginning of the story of the Tower of Babel, the Torah emphasizes that they did this in a valley. So we're not just concentrating on the brick story, right? Also, the valley has a lot to do with this. All right, so this parallels the difference between the land of Israel which contains stones. That's a place where there's a lot of there's a lot of mountains. So there's a lot of stones there, right? Jerusalem stone. A lot of the buildings in Israel were built with stone. Um, and Babylonia, which is Shinar, which is the valley where this whole story happened, which has no stones and needs bricks. The land of Israel is intrinsically holy, as the land God is constantly looking after from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. This is also why it is a land whose stones are iron, stones as strong as iron. Israel is a land that is actually beyond nature, but God wished for it to be conducted naturally as well, with plowing, sowing, and also the capacity for brick processing. But the topography of Israel is very much in tune to the idea that this is a place where God reigns, 
and therefore it's a place of stone. God made natural stones with which you could build your buildings. What's Babylonia? What's Babylon? Which represents the entire diaspora is a valley about which it is said he found an open valley and fenced it in. A valley is a flat, open space. There are no boundaries. There's no borders. It's open. When you're in a place where there's a lot of mountains, so that naturally there are defined regions, there are defined spaces. I can't go to the right. I can't go to the left. There's a mountain in the way. There's a border. I'm reined in. I'm controlled. The valley, open. There's no control here. Take whatever you want. Go wherever you want. It's open. A Jew needs to know that he has restrictions. A fence from both sides, to the left and to the right. Regarding every matter, what to do or what not to do, he must first clarify what God's desire is. What is allowed by the code of Jewish law and what is forbidden. A Jew is not naturally, in, in other words, a Jew's habitat is not the valley. A Jew is controlled. He knows that there are positive mitzvot, what he should do. There's negative mitzvot, he should not do. He has restrictions. Nope. There can, however, be a state of an open, unguarded valley. Now, when a person looks at it superficially, he doesn't see any restrictions of Torah and mitzvot and thinks that here, Every person can do as they wish without any restrictions. So like met metaphorically speaking, Israel, a, a place that has a lot of mountains, means a place that's controlled, has boundaries. You know that you can't do whatever you want. You know that there's a Shulchan Aruch, a code of Jewish law. But when you go out into the big wild west, you go out into the world, you know, in Europe they used to say that America, that's the Trefe Medina, that's the unkosher, that's the unholy place. Why? You come to America, psh, land of opportunity, there's no restrictions, no boundaries, do whatever you want, however you want, whenever you want, right? So does that mean when a Jew shows up in the valley, that's it? He has no restrictions? No. When you show up in the valley, you got to build restrictions. You have to build borders. You have to build boundaries. And how do you build boundaries? What do you need in the valley in order to build boundaries? A brick. You need bricks, right? You don't have stones. You need bricks. For a Jew to conduct himself in such a place in accordance with God's will, which is to listen to these laws and observe them, hard work and effort is necessary. In Babylonia, in the valley, there are no stones naturally created by God. There's no natural holiness. It's not automatic that everything is kosher. It's not automatic that on Shabbos all the stores are closed. It's not automatic that when it comes Pesach, matzah will be available. Or that a lulav and esrog is going to be available by sukkahs. Or that we're going to walk down the street, you're going to see a sukkah in every backyard. It doesn't happen automatically. God wishes that everything be achieved through human toil and effort. When you come into the valley, when you come into these places, every single mitzvah comes with a lot of effort. Without toil, there can be no success. And when a person does toil, he is assured that he will succeed. If a person isn't successful, this indicates he hasn't toiled. And when he does toil, he will certainly be able to study Torah and observe mitzvahs, conducting a proper Jewish life as God wishes. It all depends on that. So here we're, we're actually taking an entirely different look at the brick. The brick is not the problem. The brick 
is the solution. When do you need the brick? When you're in the valley. When you're in the open space, when you're a place where there are no boundaries, no limitations, where Judaism is not felt in the streets. You know, the Rebbe used to always say that in the shtetl in, in, in Europe, the, you know, in Russia, when you walk down the street, you were able to sense, you were able to breathe in fear of heaven. Everything was, it was just, it was, it was just so palpable. You could feel Shabbos in the air. You could feel that a Yom was coming. Everything was exactly as it should be. But we came to, we came to America, we came to, you know, the rest of the world. Judaism was not dominant. Now it's a valley. So it's all lost? No. Now you got to build bricks. Now you have to create those boundaries. You have to work hard. What's the secret to this? Brick making. The process of brick making requires taking clay from the ground, kneading it, forming it into shape, and then baking it in the furnace. This produces a strong and durable brick. Same is true regarding education. A person is born like a wild donkey. And if left in this state without any process of kneading, changing the form, it will not be a strong and durable brick that can be used to build a lasting edifice. For example, even though a child screams that he wants to eat candies and sweets, he needs to be educated and told that eating candy damages the teeth and is unhealthy. The same is true about other similar matters. You have to need, you have to shape, you have to, you know, you have to, you have to, you have to ensure that they do the right thing. When a child is educated properly and receives the proper form, that's not enough. The next thing is, the next step is, and is then baked in the furnace with the holy fire of passion for godliness and becomes permeated with love for God and his commandments, he or she will grow to be a strong Jew. Such a Jew will be able to withstand all of the waves and winds that blow outside. Such a Jew can live in the valley and still have the proper boundaries that don't allow him to become wild and lose his or her identity. While the lack of stones in Babylonia appears to be a disadvantage in comparison to the land of Israel, the sages tell us that one Babylonian scholar is equal to two scholars in Israel. We need to learn from the toil required in Babylonia, form the clay into the right shape and bake it in the furnace until it becomes a new entity permeated with the fire of passion for godliness. Then even mighty waters will be unable to extinguish the love, the love of God that burns in the heart of every Jew. Now this, this reminds me of a, a very interesting uh, episode that occurs at the end of Bereshit, at the end of the first book of the Torah. So Yaakov is the third of the, of the forefathers. He has 12 sons. And one of them is Yosef, right? Joseph. Joseph was sold by the brothers. He ended up in Egypt. He became the second to the king. And the Torah tells us that he married and he had two sons, Ephraim and Menashe. Ephraim and Menashe were born before Yaakov came to Egypt. We're going to skip the whole story, but Yaakov comes down to Egypt. Yaakov is about to die. So Yosef brings his two sons to Yaakov to receive a blessing. So Yaakov says like this, when God blessed me as I was coming back from Lavan's home, I was coming back to my, my father's home. And he told me that you're going to give birth to another nation and another two nations. That other nation was Binyamin. Benjamin was born after they came back to the land of Israel. But he said, I was also told that it would be another two nations. 
and I didn't have any children afterwards. So I figured that one of my one of my sons, one of the tribes, is going to be split into two. And Yaakov says the ones who are going and, and so so one of my so two of my grandchildren are going to be the ancestors of the tribes of Israel. And he says, I'm designating that blessing to your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Why? They were born to you in Egypt before I came. What was he saying? He said, the fact that all of my sons remained religious and committed and devoted Jews when they were in the land of Israel around me, that's great. But the fact that you were able to educate Jewish children in Egypt far away <clears throat> from the nucleus of spiritual inspiration, far away from Israel and far away from Yaakov. Now that's the real deal. So, so you know, as we started off by saying the valley is a bad place, the bricks are bad, they empowered humanity to give expression to their egos, to fight against God, to think that they could ignore God, etc. But here we're taking an entirely different look at this whole thing. And we're saying the valley is a reality. The fact that there are places where there are no boundaries, where it's all open, you can do whatever you want. There are no ghetto walls, right? That's pretty much what a valley is. There's no ghetto walls. In Europe, it wasn't a valley. In Europe, it was there were ghetto walls that, that constricted the Jews from assimilating. They came to the new world. It's a valley. It's open. There are no walls. There are no more ghettos. And assimilation became rampant. So now we have to build up our own walls. We have to build up those walls that protect our Judaism. Not to be, what? Boundaries. Boundaries, exactly. And how do you do that in the valley? There's no stones to build with. There's no natural Judaism around. How do you build it? You have to, it's mainly through education. Through shaping yourselves, through shaping your children, and most importantly, putting ourselves and them into the furnace. We gotta be red hot. We have to be passionate about our Judaism. And when we do that, we've got the proper strong bricks we need in order to build up the boundaries that we need so that even in the valley, even in the free world, the world where there are no ghetto walls, thank God, we are still able to retain our Judaism, our Jewish dignity, our Jewish pride through Jewish observance, through Jewish knowledge. And with that, when it comes time for Mashiach to come, and he's going to bring us all back to the land of Israel, there's going to be a whole community of Jews from the diaspora, which is actually much more valuable, much more precious than the many Jews that could be raised in the land of Israel, which is a naturally spiritual and divine place. But outside of the diaspora, the fact that you can raise a community of Jews, that is the real amazing feat and amazing accomplishment of the Jewish people. And with that, we will conclude today's class. Thank you all for joining us. We look forward to seeing you. Thank you, you. Rabbi. Thank you. See you in the morning.